This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. Koto Naimai Haere Mai and welcome to another edition of Activate on Plains FM 96.9. We have a very exciting show for you this evening. We have an interview with Zabi Hula Karimula. He was the ex-Attorney General for Afghanistan last year and now he lives in New Zealand in Auckland with his family. He's going to tell you all about what life is like in Afghanistan now, uh, the tragedy of the Taliban taking over and also his history of living in Afghanistan and what his role was like being the Attorney General. We'll also have our good news story that's from Greg and finally I'll do a slot about how you can help with uh, efforts in Afghanistan through Amnesty International. Zabihullah Kalim Karimula was appointed by the President of Afghanistan as the Attorney General of Afghanistan in April 2021. This meant that he was the Chief Law Officer and the Legal Advisor for the Government of Afghanistan. Before becoming Attorney General, he worked for 10 years with the United Nations Development Programme in Afghanistan and in Sudan in the rule of law and human rights sector, supporting the rule of law and human rights institutions. He was educated in Egypt and he also holds a master's degree in law from the University of California, Davis. I spoke with Zabihullah Karimula a little bit earlier via Skype, and so we will play that for you now. Hello, Zabihula Karimula. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Welcome to our show. Uh, thank you, Catherine, for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, I thought that I would ask you first about your role as the ex-Attorney General for Afghanistan. Um, our listeners, to give them a brief understanding... In New Zealand, the AG has two roles. The first is as the government's principal law officer. So that's responsible for the government's administration of the law. And the second is as the minister for the Crown Law Office, the Parliamentary Council Office, and the Serious Fraud Office. Were your responsibilities in Afghanistan similar? Well, I would say a bit different. I was the chief law officer and legal advisor of the government of Afghanistan. Um, I served as Afghanistan's public prosecutor or chief prosecutor for the whole country. And I'm I'm appointed by the president. Um, I was in charge of 3,500 prosecutors and more than 7,000 staff, 23 of which were women prosecutors. And... uh, Prosecutors in Afghanistan prosecute only criminal cases at the Attorney General Office. Mm -hmm. So you took on this role in April 2021, last year. What I'm really interested in is it's a massive responsibility, the job that you took on. And you took that on knowing that in that same year, 
the US government would withdraw from Afghanistan. There would be a, presumably a tumultuous time ahead. Did the, that backdrop mean that the decision to accept the role, did it weigh heavily on your mind? Well, um, see, uh, Catherine, uh, uh, I was well aware that the Americans are leaving. Um, and it was a good thing to see that they're leaving because uh, the public wanted them to leave and they had to leave one day. For me, this part was not a matter of concern. Uh, besides, I was well aware of the functions of the Attorney General Office. I have always worked very closely with the justice sector institutions. Um, I was knowing the challenges and challenges and the ways forward. However, um, the difficult part was that I was going to accept the most difficult and challenging job in a country with uh, so much less security in it. Um, uh, is the nature of my job required to go after um, the most dangerous criminals like warlords, drug mafia, uh, say land mafia, to bring them to justice. And this required to sacrifice and I accepted it. And uh, besides, uh, it was really the time to do it because uh, the international community was demanding um, evidence-based progress against corruption so that they can keep supporting the Afghan government or the Afghan state. Uh, based on the request from His Excellency the President, I had to accept the job with all the challenges existed, since there was a political will and a strong support from the President to fight corruption. And I thought this is really a chance for, for Afghanistan, so that we can keep uh, the assistance of the international community. Mm, I understand. So you have mentioned corruption, and that's something that a lot of our listeners will have read a lot about, the levels of corruption in the Afghanistan government. Um, what was happening then in the justice sector in Afghanistan in terms of corruption when you first took the role in April last year? Well, um, there were issues in the justice sector when I became involved in it. Uh, um, uh, from allegation all the way to uh, to fighting it was um, was a difficult task. So I started to form a strong team. In uh, first, I clean our own institution of not being involved in any sort of corruption before going after others. Um, so I formed eight technical committees to assist the overall performance of all departments of the Attorney General Office and to investigate all allegations of corruptions in the office first. Uh, we assist the performance of uh, all heads of the prosecutor office offices across the country in 34 provinces. Uh, and, as, and as a result, we removed, in just those three or four months, we removed 130 pu public prosecutors who serves as heads of their departments and others who were found to be not living up to the standards required of them, or had political affiliation is for any prosecutor to work uh, at the Attorney General Office required to be an impartial and just. So it was a challenging job. Yeah. Mm. The previous Attorney General, had he made many inroads into the problems of corruption before you took the job? Well, uh, uh, yes, he did. It's uh, uh, it's a matter of fact that he did. Uh, and he, and it, it was not just the Attorney General Office. Also, um, the um, uh, any other um, institutions were there to to help the AGO, so he did. But I think it wasn't enough. Uh, uh, 
uh, I think um, in the final years, uh, there were much said about the corruption. And I think they failed um, to really do that, the, the, the task being given mm. properly. So that was why uh, there was... Uh, there was a call uh, uh, to for changes to to happen at the attorney general's office. It sounds like you were able to make a lot of change in only three months when you first started. Did you feel hopeful about that change you were making? Exactly, because when you have a strong team, uh, a very dedicated and committed team, so you can do any any difficult job uh, in the country. And I was very hopeful after the changes we made. We made sure that you know there's no uh, a friendship, no political affiliation of my prosecutors towards any political parties in there. So I was quite hopeful that we are just near to uh, to go and, and 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 get much success in the in the new future. Excellent. Well, then, tragically, the Taliban took over Afghanistan in about August of that year. So what do you understand has happened in the justice sector since the Taliban takeover last year? Uh, First thing that they uh, did was uh, the release of 7,000 Taliban prisoners. They called it uh, political prisoners. Uh, I don't think that was a big harm, but the big harm was uh, that they have released 17,000 other serious criminals uh, from the prisons. And uh, this release called that this, these prisoners uh, go after uh, for revenge uh, to judges and prosecutors. And, uh, and uh, also another bad move or wrong move that the Taliban committed was the dismissal of all women judges and women prosecutors. Um, They replaced uh, judges and prosecutors with untrained um, uh, Taliban so-called judges and prosecutors. Um, The Taliban removed uh, the EVA units or elimination of violence against women units the mandate of which was to look into the cases of violence against women. And we have a history of violence against women. So these staff were very much uh, equipped and um, knowledgeable of addressing uh, uh, these kind of cases. But unfortunately, they have removed them. And if you go and check the the Ministry of Interior, we had family response units. Uh, They have removed that. So these are quite uh, uh, wrong moves by the Taliban in the very early days of when they uh, took over. Mm. I understand that uh, some of the women judges have fled to safety in the UK, for example. I know there was a campaign to get some to the UK. UK. Many others would still be in Afghanistan, but without a job and in fear of their safety. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Yes. What I wanted to ask you a bit about now is how quickly the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan. I know that for myself, at least, I was shocked by how quickly it happened, and I know that a lot of the world felt the same way. What was the feeling of the Afghani people? Were they shocked too or knew that there was a good chance that the Taliban would regain power in some way? Well, Catherine, it was a shocking moment for everyone, in and out of Afghanistan. I, well, I, I would say that no one expected this to happen. 
And there are many reasons for that. I mean, uh, in 2014, when there were only 9,800 American soldiers left, um, and very small number of NATO forces were in Afghanistan, almost 90% of all operations were led by the Afghan forces itself. Uh, since then, till 2001, there was no single province that could have fallen to Taliban. Afghan forces proved that they have the ability, skills, and courage to defend the country. Well, what happened in August 15, it's beyond words to explain. So, indeed, it shocked all of us. And I have uh, no information what might have, might have happened. Uh, and it was just a very sad feeling for everyone because this was not really the way that been brought uh, during the last two year uh, discussions of the international community with the Taliban in Qatar saying that there would be a peaceful transition interim government and uh, um, it will be a process uh, but unfortunately it went wrong. Mm, wrong very very quickly. Yeah. When the world saw this takeover happen um, many millions of people around the world were very fearful for the uh, rights of women and children under the Taliban. You worked for many years for the United Nations Development Programme, including specifically on women's rights, so this is a, a special interest of yours. What do you see as the future for rights of women and children under the Taliban? Well, Catherine, uh, uh, to tell something about the future, I think if we go... Th- to, to see like you know what is actually happening now or what actually happened in Afghanistan it might give us uh, uh, a kind of clue of uh, to really say something about the future mm. see I mean from the day Taliban took over we witnessed that you know the Human Rights Commission is an independent and an impartial body is not functioning anymore uh, you see the Ministry of Women Affairs are removed from the list of ministries completely we don't have a Ministry of Women Affairs anymore uh, you probably know about the restriction on education for women and girls in some provinces or in, in most provinces of, of, of the country. We still, every day we, we see something or we, we hear something from the Taliban, which sometimes makes us hopeful that they're working on a kind of a policy where they will allow girls to come to school. But it almost took seven months and there's nothing on the ground. Uh, also, there are restrictions on, on, on what women wear, uh, restrictions on women going outside the house without a male relative accompanying them. And, you know, this 40 years of war, there are many without husbands, without brothers. I mean, it's it's becoming difficult for, pe- for people even to move or to access their basic human rights uh, um, to, to travel or to, uh, to, to, to move. Uh, restrictions on, on women being able to work as professional in most other jobs. Uh, it's very un- unfortunate to see all these developments have taken place very quickly. Um, it really not help us uh, be op- op- optimistic about the future of women in Afghanistan. And uh, what I believe is that it's really a, a time that the international community needs to work now more closely with the new government to ensure that the human rights is respected and, and and promoted. So I don't see really much hope, but it really depends on, 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 on coming days to see how Talibans are going to change their attitude towards women. What you're describing sounds like life was like in Afghanistan 20 years ago when the Taliban were first in power. Is that your feeling, that really 
they haven't changed, as some people would like to think. They are the same entity. Well, I mean, uh, the only changes that I could see is just the, the leadership. I mean, the leadership uh, that was sitting in Qatar doing all the negotiations. We know in their information that their girls are going to to, to the best schools in Qatar. So, uh, so Khalilzad was right to say that, you know, Taliban has changed. But, you know, down in Afghanistan, I don't see uh, uh, there's any change. We don't witness any change. We see that... Uh, 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 that woman, as I told you, all those um, uh, information about the situation in the country. So I don't see really any change on the ground level in Afghanistan. Uh, the only change might have that, you know, these leaders have seen many uh, beautiful uh, capitals of different countries. They went to Moscow, they went to um, Indonesia, to France, to Paris. Um, um, uh, but uh, I don't really see any change in their attitude towards women. Mm. It's just the it just remind me of the time uh, between uh, 1996 to 2001. Um, uh, I think that they are they are really the same. Uh, their attitude towards women, particularly the same. So we had all these issues those times. Even those times they were saying that, you know, they don't have resources to provide schools for girls. But today the case is completely different. We already have schools. We had teachers on, on parole. So they, the only thing they needed just to call them to, to come in and start their, their, their schools. Absolutely. So what you seem to be describing is the leadership may be well uh, better organized, um, but what they're actually doing is, is exactly the same. Uh, yeah, I see. Like you know, they only wanted for them fa- for their family, uh, but not for the rest of the country. So if the leadership had any political will to change, they could have changed. But they understand the 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 how valuable education is for girls, and that's why they're sending their girls. But they don't want that for the rest of the country, and mm. this is very unfortunate. Where are they sending their girls to be educated? Well, I mean, the, um, most most of these leadership's families are sitting in Pakistan, in Qatar, in uh, UAE. Right. So, and they are privileged, uh, and we are happy uh, that their kids are going to schools. But we want that also for for the for the for the whole of for the whole of the nation for the whole country. Yes, it's very revealing, isn't it, that they are sending their own girls to school. That shows a deep. Cynicism, really, it's about power, not about religion. Absolutely. There's no no place uh, uh, for this kind of beliefs in religion. Religion made com- education compulsory for men and women. Mm. I'm sure you were as fascinated to hear from Karim as I was. That is part one of a two-part interview The second part will air later in the year and focuses more on Karim's personal history. Kia ora koutou, this is Greg from the uh, Activate show. Um, The international news at the moment is quite challenging, including, of course, the situation in Ukraine. But at Activate, we like to highlight every month some good news stories. So I have two for you this month. The first comes out of Saudi Arabia, where the Saudi-born blogger Raif Badawi has been released from prison in Saudi Arabia after serving a 10-year sentence for insulting Islam and advocating an end to religious influence on public life. Um, He was originally uh, sentenced to those charges in the end of 2014. 
to 10 years, and as a result, he became a symbol of freedom of expression around the world. So Amnesty International said that although there are conditions in place on his, on Raif Badawi's release, um, Amnesty will continue to actively work to have any conditions lifted. Um, Amnesty International also said thank you to everyone, including Amnesty supporters and others who had tirelessly worked in the last 10 years on in the defence of Raif Badawi and for his release. And Canada's uh, Quebec province, so... Um, Raif Badawi's wife, Ensaf Haider, and children live in Canada. So Canada's Quebec province has paved the way for Raif Badawi to become to the country if he chooses to by placing him on a priority list of potential immigrants for humanitarian reasons. So we'll keep a watching brief on that story, but that's good news in the first instance. The second story comes to us from the UK, where The Guardian reported on the 16th of March that the release of uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and Anusha Ashori um, has come to pass. So essentially they were, after a six-year ordeal of being um, held detained by the Iranian authorities, they were released by Iran on the 16th and they've been freed in order to return home to be reunited with their families. Um, they were released uh, in Tehran to be flown to Oman and then on to an RAF uh, base where they were met by the UK Foreign Secretary. Um, Amnesty International's response to the report uh, um, that they've been released um, from the UK, Amnesty International UK CEO, Sasha Deshmukh, said this is fantastic news and hasn't come a minute too soon. They should never have been detained in the first place and the charges were essentially trumped up by the um, Iranian authorities in order to use... Uh, the two women as pawns in a, uh, basically political pawns in, in that situation for diplomatic value. Um, the UK government, Amnesty says, needs to follow up and ensure that other British and other um, foreign nationals who are detained in Iran are released as well. So that's some very good news that those two women have been released. And if you want further details about how you can continue to campaign on, on the path of other people, including Rafe Badawi, who we mentioned, then please go to amnesty.org.nz and also amnesty.org, the international website. Uh, have a great month, everyone, and we'll see you next showtime. What I want to move on to now is how you can help Afghanistan Urgent Action. What we will do is we will post these links on our Facebook page so you know where to go. Firstly, you can donate to our appeal. That's via our website, www.amnesty.org.nz. You'll find a link there to donating money directly to the Afghanistan Appeal. What we are also doing is sending solidarity messages uh, to pass on to Afghan women um, and also to pass on to human rights defenders. Um, what we're doing there is where Amnesty National can safely do so. We will share your words of support so that human rights defenders know that they are not alone in standing for a better future for Afghanistan. There are some templates that we have for those and we can post those on our Facebook page. Another aspect of our Afghanistan appeal is to call the government to increase the refugee quota. Now, this is also to help those from Ukraine and Myanmar, for example. Um, but given we're talking about Af Afghanistan, we would also urge you to make it specific to Afghanistan as well. Recently, our executive 
director Meg Deron spoke with TVNZ and she was talking about the refugee quotas. She was mentioning that New Zealand has only resettled 451 refugees since July 2021, making it increasingly unlikely it will reach its commitment of 1,500. Amnesty International is urging the government to do more. New Zealand is already one of the lowest refugee settlement per capita countries, coming in at a very low 95th in the world. Meg Durand said that it was not good enough to increase the quota after 30 years, fail to meet it, then not increase it. She stated that good intentions won't actually bring people to safety, given we didn't fill the numbers for the last two years, it would seem a good possibility to bring an emergency quota over and above to recognise there is a huge number of people who haven't had the opportunity to come to New Zealand in the last couple of years. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our programme this month. I feel extremely privileged that we had Zabi Hula Karimula on our show. Uh, hope lies in people like him. What an inspiring man in the world could definitely do with more Mr Kareem's. I urge you to do what you can uh, on our Afghanistan appeal. Please tune into the Facebook page or the website itself. Thank you to the team here at Plains FM and to my colleagues for their contribution. Uh, I look forward to you joining us next month. Kakitiano. Kakitiano.